What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here, live. Well, I'm live. The show isn't live, but from inside the war room. So good to be back. Bunch of episodes I've got to release, and so we're going to get to it today. You might have heard. You might have heard about this little kerfuffle um, about serotonin and depression. Well, your boy has the story for you. But first, let's thank our sponsor, which is, again, Bluehost. You're looking for hosting. You're looking for free publicity. I've got it for you. Go to ryanraysenior.com slash hosting. Sign up. Shoot me an email. And guess what? We'll give you free publicity right here on the podcast. Okay. Here we go. Joanna Moncrief is a professor of critical and social psychiatry at the University College of London and works as a consultant psychiatrist in NHS London. She researches and writes about the overuse and misrepresentation of psychiatric drugs, about the history, politics, and philosophy of psychiatry more generally. Okay, she's got all kinds of stuff. I will link to all this at ryanreysenior.com where you can check out the show notes. Hey, this is a hot one. This is a hot button issue. We got it for you. Give us a five star wherever you may be. Sign up for the newsletter to let me know what you think about what she says. That's where the, the debate happens. Would love to hear from you there. Thank you so much. Let's get to the show. Well, Joanna, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Okay. Well, you made the headlines, I guess, a week or two ago when I first reached out. Um, talking about depression, psychiatric drugs, obviously talked about this in the introduction some, but I want you to unpack exactly what it is that you've done so that I don't get it wrong, or I'm sure it's been misrepresented or at least debated publicly. We're talking about some. So what is it that you've conclusions that you think that you've found or uh, that conclusion, I guess, but what has your research found? Yeah, that, that's fine. So the recent research that has hit the headlines is what we, what we call an umbrella review of studies of links between serotonin and depression. So what we did was we looked at six main areas of research on serotonin and depression. Uh, we looked at research on serotonin levels and serotonin metabolite uh, levels, that's breakdown products. We looked at serotonin receptors. We looked at uh, levels of the protein that remove serotonin from the area where it's active. We looked at studies that have tried to see whether you can induce depression by reducing serotonin artificially. And we looked at some genetic studies. And basically what we found is that, and we looked at all the overviews and all the big database uh, studies in all of those different areas. And what we found is that there was no convincing evidence of any abnormality of serotonin in people with depression uh, or evidence that lowering serotonin could induce depression in people who didn't already have it. Okay, so I'm going to ask so that, questions. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to ask questions. Like I'm, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so that, so that was our, um, that, that's the recent research that, that's been publicized. I've been working on psychiatric drugs in general, and had an interest in antidepressants for many years. So I've, I've also done various other bits and pieces of work on, on, uh, on antidepressants, but this particular bit of work was on the research on serotonin and depression. Okay, so I'm gonna ask questions like I'm five because I am nowhere near it's educated on this as you are. Serotonin, we hear the word a lot. So A, maybe unpack what it is for folks like me who hear the term, but then more importantly, 
why would you focus on that? Like, is, is that where the research has, has been historically? Um, why would that be the thing that we're focusing on? So serotonin is what we call, it, it, it's a chemical in the body and it's present in, um, uh, in, in the gut and in the blood cells and in the brain. And in the brain, it acts as what we call a neurotransmitter. That means that it, it helps to um, facilitate the transmission of impulses from one nerve cell to another. So that's its role in the brain. So that's serotonin. Now, the reason that serotonin is of interest is that there's been a very long-standing theory that depression may be caused by low levels of lower than normal levels of serotonin in the brain. And that theory was first thought up in the 1960s, but it became widely publicized in the 1990s in association with the marketing of a new range of drugs that acted on the serotonin system called the SSRI antidepressants, that stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor Antidepressants. And they, uh, SSRI antidepressants are thought to temporarily boost serotonin levels. And so the theory behind their use, the justification for their use, was the idea that they were helping to reverse an underlying serotonin abnormality. So our research is relevant to the use of antidepressants because we have shown that the mechanism by which antidepressants or most antidepressants uh, are, have been thought to work is not actually correct. There is actually not a serotonin abnormality or deficiency that antidepressants could be correcting. Okay, I want to drill in on that for just a second here. How much serotonin should I have or the average person have, like as far as a quantity goes? And then what is a range of you know, low, high, et cetera. Um, and then finally, if you are low, does the body produce more? Aside from um, outside influences, does the body make more or how, how is it regulated? Yeah. So the first thing to say is that we can't measure levels of serotonin in the brain directly. And so, so what uh, the studies that we looked at do is they look at indirect measures of, of brain serotonin and they compare levels in people who are depressed and people who aren't depressed. And there's, there's no well-worked-out normal range for any of the things that we looked at for the serotonin receptors or the serotonin metabolites. These studies were just comparing people with depression and people without depression to see if there was any difference. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then you're saying that there is no way to measure how much serotonin is in the brain. At the moment, there's there's no good or established way to measure it. Okay. And so part of your, when you're doing this research, you're saying, okay, well, if we can't measure it, then it's hard to determine whether or not it's tied to depression or anything else for that matter. Yes, yes. Um, uh, it, it, it is difficult, but as I say, these different areas of research have looked at indirect measures of brain serotonin. Um, one, one, for example, one of the uh, measures that they've looked at is this brain uh, is this serotonin meta serotonin metabolite, this breakdown product that can be measured in the brain fluid. Uh, and you can do a <laughs> and, and that is thought to be is thought to reflect the levels of serotonin in the brain. 
um, if, uh, if, if there's something that affects serotonin levels in some way or serotonin activity, then you're right to suggest that the body might well adapt to that process and produce and, and try and counteract it. So, and, and maybe the, the best example here is, is drugs themselves. So, you know, we know that um, when you take an opiate, for example, the body tries to counteract the effects of the opiate. So if you keep taking it, its effects get less and less, you know, you get what's called tolerance to the effects. Um, there may be something similar happening with antidepressants in that they, um, they, they have this temporary effect of increasing serotonin, but there was a little bit of evidence from some of the studies we looked at that in the long term, possibly serotonin levels are even reduced in people taking antidepressants. So we, as, as well as not knowing, as well as having no evidence that serotonin is abnormal in depression, we are also not entirely sure how serotonin-based antidepressants actually affect serotonin levels or serotonin activity, Okay, and especially you, in the long term. You, you cut out there for about half a second. What did you say the name of the, the how, how you measure it? You, you were going into that and you, you cut out at the, at the very beginning of your answer. Um, how, how we measure serotonin. Yeah. The answer, yes. Yeah, at the beginning of your answer, you, you cut out for like half a second with what you're oh, sorry. Okay, so, um, uh, so, so you, because we can't measure brain serotonin directly at the moment, we look at, people have looked at indirect measures of serotonin, of brain serotonin, uh, and probably one, one of the indirect measures that's thought to be most closely related to brain serotonin is, for example, the levels of the serotonin, uh, a particular serotonin metabolite in the brain fluid, in the cerebrospinal fluid. And, uh, and, and, then, and then there are these other indirect ways of looking at serotonin activity, such as looking at the serotonin receptors uh, or the serotonin transporter protein. Okay. And so... Just based upon your research, um, do you think that, that that the medical community should focus on better ways to measure serotonin next? Would that be the next step, or what would be the next step based upon uh, your findings? Or do you think that so, it's very inclusive that it's not it's not related, and so we should move on to something else? So um, it's it's very difficult to prove a negative. You can never really sort of conclusively prove that there's absolutely no effect of, of serotonin. Uh, and of course, there might be lots of other brain chemicals involved in depression. But my, my personal view is that this is a signal that looking for depression in the brain is not the right place to look. We've been trying to find abnormalities of serotonin, along with lots of other things, for at least since the 1950s, for almost 70 years now. And we have not found a biochemical or other convincing biological cause of depression. And we know that adverse life events, what happens to you in your life, is very strongly related to depression. So my feeling is that we should take a different view and stop trying to find the biological causes or biological signature of depression, but understand it as uh, a human emotional response to adverse life circumstances. 
You've brought up the 60s a few times. You said that's kind of where this research began. But maybe just take us in the time machine for half a second. How advanced was this technology in the 60s? Because if we've been building off of these uh, ideas, theses, if you will, from the 60s, I suspect in the 60s they couldn't measure a lot of things that well back then. So, um, so the serotonin hypothesis first came about because because um, a, a drug that was brought into psychiatry actually for the treatment of people with schizophrenia called reserpine was, uh, was found to have some effects on the serotonin system and, uh, and, and it was also observed to produce depression in people who took it or in some people who took it. Now, so, the, the, these were the early days of understanding neurotransmitters and how drugs affect them. And basically, the more we have found out about drugs and neurotransmitters, the more complicated the whole field has become. And we've realized that most drugs affect many, many different sorts of neurotransmitters in lots of different ways. And we're not even quite clear about, we're not quite clear about how the effects on different receptors translate into behavioral effects or emotional effects. And it turned out that uh, that drug reserpine didn't just affect serotonin, the serotonin system, it had effects on lots of other systems. And those other systems, like its effects on the dopamine system, could uh, well be account, could well account for uh, the fact that it could induce a depressive type state in some people. And to add to that, um, there was even a study that looked at this drug reserpine for the treatment of depression and actually found it was an effective treatment for depression. So the origins of the serotonin theory were, were these, um, as with many of these biochemical theories, were basically speculations that followed from the observed effects of drugs and assumptions about which receptor systems were most important in the effects of those drugs. Okay. And, and so in your research, um, the studies that you're examining, um, you know, what, what time period are these recent studies? Is this like, is this research a little bit older? Um, how does that look? So, so uh, the studies we we're examining go back probably to the 1990s. We're not looking at really old studies. Um, and uh, a lot of them, well, we, well, uh, let's take a step back. We, we, because we were doing an umbrella review, because there is so much research out there on serotonin, we, what, what an umbrella review is, is it's a review of reviews. So what we did is we looked at each area and we looked at the systematic reviews and meta-analyses, that's combined analyses of studies that have been done on each area. Um, and I think I'm right in saying all of those have been done since the year 2000. And but they, but they were looking at study. They may have included studies that were done before then, but most would not have included studies done any any time before the nineteen nineties. Oh, oh, okay. I guess the the thing here that that I'm I'm contemplating is if I understand how they're determining or they're guessing the serotonin amounts, uh, and they're doing this research by these other indicators. Um, if you're if you're listening to this, you might go, well, huh how many drugs are being prescribed uh, apart from depression based upon this similar logic where we don't actually know um, 
you know, how much of the actual substance is in the body. Should this be a concern for the general population to question how these drugs are being uh, manufactured and determined? And the second part of that is when you break down this research, again, not, not a doctor, but or not a scientist, not, not, not either, just a podcaster. <laughs> it, it makes sense to me to at least ask these questions. Is your, have your conclusions been viewed by, the, by your community as reasonable or what's been kind of the, the, the reception? Yeah, those are really good questions. So, um, so my my uh, my main work over the last couple of decades has been to outline and find all the evidence for um, different ways that we can understand what drugs are doing when we give them to people for mental health problems. And the conventional way of understanding what they're doing is this idea that they are reversing or targeting in some way an underlying abnormality that is the cause of the symptoms, whether it is depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. And what I've been saying is, first of all, that we are not sure that there, those underlying abnormalities exist. And secondly, there are other, there are other plausible ways of understanding and explaining what drugs might be doing when we give them to people with mental health problems, what the sort of drugs that we use might be doing. Um, and, and, and this other way of understanding what drugs might be doing hinges on the fact that the drugs that we prescribe for mental health problems are all drugs that change normal brain functioning and thereby change normal mental states and behaviours and emotions. We might refer to them, and I, and I have referred to them, as psychoactive drugs. Uh, now, we normally think of psychoactive drugs as recreational drugs, alcohol, cannabis, things like that. But the drugs that we prescribe for people with mental health problems are also psychoactive drugs. A lot of them don't have pleasant effects, don't, don't produce mental or physical changes that, that are pleasant or that people like very much. They don't cause euphoria, although some of them, of course, do. We use, uh, you know, stimulants and benzodiazepines are, are used in psychiatric practice, which do have euphoric effects. But, but drugs like antidepressants, although it may sound odd, um, don't generally have euphoric, euphoric effects, don't make people feel euphoric or happy or nice. Um, but they do nevertheless change normal mental processes. Um, in ways that we haven't studied in great detail, but we know because people report them. And there are a small number of volunteer studies that indicate this as well, that indicate when you give these drugs to people who don't have mental health problems, they feel different. Um, some of the drugs are a bit sedating, you know, people feel a bit groggy, a bit, bit, uh, bit drowsy, um, not all of them. Um, and then another effect that, the, that antidepressants have in particular seems that, that's commonly reported is emotional numbing. They seem to blunt emotions and quite a lot of psychoactive drugs blunt or numb emotions in one way or another. And that of course is how antidepressants could be impacting on depression. Um, so, uh, so I can't remember what the question was now, but- well, think, The second uh, question was, is how, how have your peers responded to your yeah, yeah, yeah. So the second part, so, so the first part was was about um, about, and the second part of your question is how 
these ideas have been received by other people. So first of all, I'll just tell you about how the serotonin paper is received, has been received. So the serotonin paper has, it's been very interesting um, how other doctors and psychiatrists have responded to this paper. And most of them have been saying, of course, we knew this all along. This isn't news. We knew that there was no, that depression was never due to a chemical imbalance or a simple serotonin deficiency. We always knew it was more complicated all along. And that doesn't change anything because we know that antidepressants work. And we know that on the basis of placebo controlled trials. So business as usual, we don't need to worry about anything. This is not important. Um, however, the vast majority of the general public have been told or have been led to believe not that this was all more complicated and of course not proven, but that it was proven and was established and that we did know what the drugs were doing. So I, I think this is a bit embarrassing really, a bit of an embarrassing response by the psychiatric community to just say, oh, you know, we knew this all along. If we, if people did know this all along, why haven't they been telling, you know, why haven't people, you know, much higher up figures in the psychiatric establishment have, why haven't they been saying this and publicizing this fact? Um, or, or at least trying to trying to counteract all the mm. um, propaganda that, that came out of um, of the marketing of these drugs. Yeah, I've wondered um, about the the narrative. In any time someone says the science is settled, I usually kind of wonder about is it really settled? What does that mean? You know, what questions are being asked? So I've often wondered about um, about this this topic because people say we we know that this chemical imbalance da 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 like. Like, how do we know? Like, again, just from an outsider's perspective, but then also at the same time, I know people who struggle with depression. And and for me, I mean, there, there was one time when I was, the only time I've ever really been depressed was early in COVID when all kinds of things, my business were going down. I couldn't stop. It's like, oh, you know, that was, that was like a, maybe a month, but long-term depression, I've never struggled with. So I don't know. I, I look at my, my friends or whomever who might struggle with it. Like, well, I don't, I can't, you, yeah. so, so you, you cut out for a, quite a bit, right? You, you know people who struggled with depression. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It, but, but I can't, it's hard for me to, I don't say sympathize, but understand because I don't struggle with it. So um, I've had questions about, do we actually know what causes it? But I've also go, well, what is different between me and this person? Because we seem pretty similar, but they seem to struggle with this. And so it's been a question in, in my mind for some time. Um, so I, I still have to say that it, it doesn't surprise me that they're, has been some questions about it, but to your point, it's also a little bit shocking that people go, oh, well, it's a lot more complicated because it was the science is settled is what I've heard my whole life. The science is settled on this issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yes, and and I, I, I think, you know, I think the psychiatric community have not wanted to disillusion people about that because they were afraid that that might make people ask questions about what antidepressants were doing questions that to me are you know quite legitimate questions but that I think some psychiatrists don't want people to ask okay you know I suppose that, that you know the obvious the obvious next question from our research is well if there is no abnormality of serotonin but we know that in, in depression but we know that antidepressants are modifying the serotonin system in some way what what consequences might that have you know, someone taking a drug every day that is changing your serotonin levels, and, and we're not quite sure how, how it's doing that in the long term, um, you know, changing your normal brain chemistry in some right. way, 
uh, you know, that, that, that starts to sound a little bit worrying. And, and, and I think it should be a little bit worrying. I think, I think people should, uh, should worry about the idea of taking, of taking drugs on, you know, on a, a daily long-term basis, drugs that change the state of the brain. So I'm not saying that it's, you know, that it's something people should never do, but I do think it's something people need to be very careful about. Right. Okay. So uh, one of the things that we've, when we created the show was we wanted to have conversations with people from different perspectives and uh, different thought processes. And part of that is my, my frustration in general with um, uh, the corporate media, the media at large, is that we have narrative A, and then we go to narrative B, and then no one ever connects while we go from A to B. And so uh, for some time now living in Texas, I, I pointed out that um, pre-COVID, um, the news organizations in the U.S. were talking about how bad Big Pharma was. Now, it didn't really impact where I was but because the, the opioid crisis is further to the east, but the opioid, opioid crisis, this is a big thing. Uh, and then we move into COVID, and we're, we're told now, hey, we all need to take a vaccine, and those things can be separate or not. But but no one ever connected the link from Big Pharma's bad to Big Pharma's good. And so people should rightly at least go, well, what has changed here? Um, and so for me, I, I do have a question about how much, in your opinion, um, does Big Pharma influence studies like this for or against whatever? Because I, I can see a situation where they have millions, if not billions of dollars at stake to keep people medicated. I'm not saying that, that they doing that but i am sure it's a it's a fair question to at least ask i think so so big pharma undoubtedly established this whole narrative about a chemical imbalance uh very very deliberately in the 1990s and they did it because in the 1980s the best-selling drugs for mental health were the benzodiazepines and then there was a huge scandal because it became apparent that they were highly addictive and massively overprescribed and prescribed to people, you know, wh whose whose lives were miserable and unhappy, were being abused, etc. Effectively to tranquilize them, um, and the pharmaceutical industry realized it had to tell a different story. It couldn't just sell another tranquilizer. So it needed to persuade people that they had some sort of underlying chemical abnormality, and that the drugs that they were selling to them we're going to correct that underlying abnormality rather than just numb them or tranquilize them or whatever. Um, so, uh, so the chemical imbalance idea was a, was a really important part of the marketing strategy of SSRIs and other modern antidepressants in the 1990s. And uh, that, that's, that's really when this idea sort of took hold and became part of public consciousness. So it's undoubtedly the case that the pharmaceutical industry created a huge market for antidepressants by persuading people of a, a myth that, that was unsubstantiated, persuading people there was a chemical imbalance that had never been convincingly demonstrated. Okay. Um, yeah. It won, uh, sure. I should add, though, that Big Pharma, sorry, I should just add, Big Pharma is not massively involved in the antidepressants scene, though, at the moment, because there are very, none of the major antidepressants that are used are on patent anymore. So they're not being marketed or advertised and pharma isn't making a lot of money out of them. And that's probably why 
I can publish my paper and other people can write critical articles about antidepressants. It was much more difficult to do that. Okay. Um, so let me ask you this uh, last question for you. Someone listening to this goes, okay, I don't buy all this. Yeah, Serotonin's a thing. What would it take to convince you? So what, what research needs to be produced to disprove your current thesis? Um, I mean, I suppose if, you know, if, if all the research that we'd looked at showed much more convincing differences and strong differences between people with depression and people without depression, um, and looked at people with depression who hadn't already been using antidepressants, because that's a problem with some of the studies that people were already using antidepressants, which we know are interfering with the serotonin system to begin with. Um, uh, you know, if, if you've got lots of signals like that coming from different areas of, of, of research, that would indicate that maybe there's, there's some sort of abnormality there. Okay, for the listeners, there's your challenge. If you want to go see if you can prove this, there you go. Okay, where do you want us to send people to? Sorry, where do you? We're a uh, website. Uh, oh, website. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so I have a website um, uh, where, where I have a website where I've written very blogs about my research, uh, but both about this serotonin research, but about other research that I've done on different psychiatric drugs. It's called joannamoncrief.com. Okay. We'll link to that, link to your book and everything else in the show notes. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you for your time and okay. listeners. We'll be back real soon. Okay. Lovely. All right. Thanks very much, Ray. Nice to talk to you. Thank you.